Last week in our sermon series, um, we began looking at the application of redemption. So Jesus accomplished redemption for us by his work on the cross that he did. We spent quite a bit of time looking at that, the natures of Christ, how he was able to accomplish that work for us, um, what, he was, what he was given to do. Uh, and then the questions that um, I told you that the questions that are before us, that one we did last time was question 29, this time question 30, and next time question 31, all speak about the application of redemption to us. The questions that we looked at before, there were, were questions 23 through 28 that spoke about the work of redemption for the church. John Murray wrote a book, has a helpful title for this, this little summary of this section. It's called uh, Redemption Accomplished and Applied. You see, when Jesus came and did his work on the cross, he accomplished our redemption. It was done once for all, like we read in Hebrews this morning, a verse from that. And then after our redemption was accomplished, then it's applied to us over time. In other words, different people were born at different times. We weren't even alive when Jesus did that work. And so in a one way, we were redeemed then. The whole church was redeemed. But in another way, we're redeemed when we personally are brought out of the darkness and into the light. And that happens in our own personal historical experience. So um, that's, really, that's really what we're looking at here. We looked at redemption accomplished, verse 23 through 28. Now redemption applied, 29, 30, and 31. So let's review question 29, the one we did last week. Question 29, we say the answer in unison. Question 29, how are we made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ? We are made partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ by the effectual application of it to us by his Holy Spirit. It would do no good if Christ had carried out the work of redemption, but never applied it to us. You would have a finished work, but it would not benefit you. We would not, to use the language of the catechism, be partakers of the redemption purchased by Christ. If it's not applied to you, then you're outside of that. If the Spirit didn't do the work of application, we can't be saved from our sins or go to heaven unless redemption is applied. Last time when we did question uh, 28, uh, we looked at, uh, or, or 29, the one we just read, uh, 29, we looked at Titus 3, 1 through 8. And uh, that passage told us that the work of redemption is not a work that we did of ourselves, okay, or that we have the ability to do. It was Jesus who had to bring us the truth and who had to die on the cross and who will destroy all our enemies. We can't do those things. It's work of prophet, priest, and king. He's the only one that can do that. But it's also true that we're unable to even repent Okay, when we're talking about the application of redemption, I can't come into that redemption that he's already done on my own. I can't even repent and believe for forgiveness to eternal life. It's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy that he saved us. By, he explains that it's the application of redemption, by the washing of regeneration. 
and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. So we have no place for boasting. It's like we were filthy, dirty, and God took the fire hose of the Holy Spirit and and cleaned us, washed us off, and we couldn't get the dirt off ourselves. We couldn't purify ourselves to even come to Jesus for salvation. So we came because there was this work of regeneration, the application of that redemption. So I guess you might say that our particular focus last time was on the fact that it is the Holy Spirit who joins us to the redemption that Christ accomplished. And now this week we want to look at how the Spirit joins us to that redemption. This is the subject of the question this week, question 30. So let's, let's recite this question together as well. Question 30, how did the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? Okay, he did it, so how did he do it? The Spirit applieth to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. You see, there's two things that are mentioned here. The Spirit works faith in us. He gave us believing so that we came to believe. And by that instrument of faith, the Spirit then unites us with Christ so that we're brought together with Him by our believing. The faith is a gift of God by the Spirit. And then the bringing that faith, that faith working to bring us into Jesus Christ so that we have the benefit of all of His saving work is the work of the Spirit as well. We're going to look at these two things today, but in the reverse order of how I, um, how I said them. First, we're going to look at the actual joining that the Spirit does to us, to the purchased redemption of Christ, the, the joining work. And then secondly, we'll look at how the Spirit does that through the instrument of faith, by giving working faith in us. So that, that's how we'll, um, we'll, we'll cover that. Our scripture text for this is Ephesians chapter 2. I want to read the whole chapter because um, the first part really talks about the um, faith that joins us. And then the second part talks about the being joined, the being united to him. So, so Ephesians 2, beginning of verse 1. This is the word of God. Give attention to it. And you he made alive, who are dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. Let me just pause there for a minute. We are by nature Enemies of God, children of wrath. You, you, we, we were contrary to him. We couldn't come. Okay? But God, verse 4, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. 
and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision made in the hands by, made in the flesh by hands that at that time you are without Christ being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world but now in Christ Jesus you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ for he himself is our peace who has made both one the Jew and the Gentile one and has broken down the middle wall of separation having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances so as to create in himself one new man from the two thus making peace and that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross thereby putting to death the enmity so Israel under the Old Testament had all their ceremonies and that separated them from the other nations and they were distinctively God's people, the ones that he chose in the Old Testament and they worshiped God through those ordinances that pointed to the redemption that was to come. But when Jesus came, he broke down that dividing wall of the law of commandments that made them a separate people in their rituals and everything and now the gospel reconciles both. Jew and Gentile, so that we were once Gentiles, now we're God's people. We were once of the nations, Gentiles in that sense, and now we're with God's people through faith, we who have believed. Verse 17, and he came, talking about Jesus, and preached peace to you who are afar off, Gentiles, and to those who are near, that's the Jews, for through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And there we'll end the reading of God's word. So the Spirit, you see has connected us to Jesus Christ in that one building, that one foundation, the Jews and the Gentiles, all together as one now are brought to Jesus Christ and joined to him in his redemptive work. The overall thrust of this passage is that you were once dead without Christ, spiritually dead, as explained in verses 2 and 3. You were in bondage to Satan, serving faithfully, Satan in opposition to God. You live for your own fleshly desires, disconnected from your purpose of serving God, both in mind and body. Now that can be manifested in different ways, can it? A person serving Satan, they can be a person that's tenaciously moral, but their whole approach to God is that because I am a good person, therefore God accepts me, which is a complete lie. And then there's other people, of course, that can become very uh, diabolical where they're committing all kinds of, of heinous, violent sins and aggression and 
that sort of thing. But when we're, we, we can have all kinds of ways that we're in bondage to Satan. But that's what we all were before we were brought to life. We may have been brought to life uh, in, in Christ from a very, very young age before we can even remember. But until that happens, we're enemies. You are a child of wrath, it says, under God's judgment, his wrath and condemnation, worthy of eternal death. So there was one thing that you needed. Somehow, you needed to be joined to Christ, prophet, priest, and king. Remember what we saw about his work. Prophet, he brings light and truth to us so that our eyes are open and we see who God is. We see our need of redemption. And a priest, he, go, he went to die on the cross for us. He offered himself on the cross to, to bear our sins. And we don't have a, a priest to to offer a sacrifice for us, that, and that sacrifice is the only one, we, we don't have any way to, to cover our sins. And then as king, he brings us out of that service to Satan and establishes us in God's service. He changes us so that we are given life by him, by union with him. And that's what we're looking at today, the union that we have. That is, so the first thing I wanna look at this afternoon is that the Holy Spirit joins us to the redemption that Christ purchased by joining us to Christ. The whole book of Ephesians emphasizes this union with Christ, that, it's what, that uh, this union with Christ is what makes the difference between death and life, between being one who's cursed and one who's blessed. If you join to Christ, you're blessed. If you're not, you're cursed. In Ephesians 2, 11 and 12, Paul tells the Ephesians that when you were Gentiles, when they were Gentiles, they were without Christ. Okay, so they were cut off from that which could save them. He describes being without Christ as a very desperate condition. The end of verse 12, he drives home what it is to be without him. He describes them as having no hope, um, no hope and being without God in the world. Think about those ominous words, no hope, no hope. There's nothing that you have to to look forward to. No condition could be worse than to be without hope and without God. It's a dreadful thing when the doctors tell you that you have some serious disease and that there's no hope. But it's infinitely worse when God's word says that you're without hope. That means you're without hope for all eternity. It's one of the most awful things about hell. There's no hope. Well, maybe, maybe it'll be better tomorrow. Maybe I'll get relief. In this world, we might even say, maybe I'll die. You know, so this will all be over. In hell, it won't ever be over. It will never be over. A million years, it's still there. There's no hope. And coupled with this, is to be without God. This is what brought us into the mess that we're in to start with, that we rejected God as our God. Mankind fell. We rejected God as our God when we ate the forbidden fruit. We declared that instead of living unto God, we were gonna live unto ourselves. We wouldn't have him as a creator God to us. He cast us out of the garden away from his presence and we were sentenced to a miserable eternity without God, without hope, 
without God. Ephesians 2 and 11, 11 and 12 is telling us with absolute clarity that to be without Christ is to be without hope and without God. You cannot have any hope and you can't be with God without Christ. Don't suppose for a moment that there's some kind of a place somewhere in the middle where you can kind of have a little bit of God and a little bit of hope, a little bit of salvation. It's, it's not. It's either is or it is not. It's not enough just that he was crucified. You must also have union with him because if only he was crucified, that might benefit other people. But until you are brought into union with him, you're over here without hope and without God. So that has to, that has to happen, that union. Those who teach that a man can be saved by doing the best he can, though he never heard of Christ, they don't believe this passage. They don't understand this passage. Very popular doctrine today. We say, oh, it can't be fair. Somebody that never heard, how could they, how could they be condemned? We're not condemned for not hearing. We're condemned because of our sin and our rebellion against God. It's perfectly just. The benefit that we hear is an extra blessing that we don't deserve in any way that there should even be a gospel of salvation. The Bible never says that there's any hope apart from Christ. It's just wishful thinking and sentimentalism to say, oh, well, you know, what about those people over there? They're trying to be honest and do the best they can with their own religion and that sort of thing. No, we must be joined to Christ if you're going to have his purchased redemption. It's nothing but pernicious wishful thinking to say otherwise. Nothing but self-flattery either. You know why? I mean, it seems like you're kind of being nice. You know, and you're saying, oh, well, you know, those people can have salvation too. But no, it's self-flattery because if you hold out hope for those that don't have Christ, you don't really believe that you would be dead in trespasses and sins without him. You've not yet really been convicted of your sin. You don't realize your condition because you're thinking that there's people out there that are kind of, kind of oriented toward God. And they're not. No one is unless God works in us without hope, without God. That's where the Gentiles were that didn't have the message of God to them. But just the opposite is true for those who are in Christ. Verse 13 says that those who are in Christ Jesus are brought near, brought near by his blood. If you're joined to him, then his death is a death for you. It's yours. It benefits you. You have his death. You have a a crucified Savior. He is yours. Compare this to a poor woman with great debts who is joined to a wealthy man in marriage. As soon as she marries, she has no more debts because he covers all of her debts. It's by union with Christ that your life and your destiny is turned around. You go from being without God and without hope to being reconciled to God and possessing the hope of Christ, of God's inheritance. You're joined to the one who paid for your sin, who has an eternal inheritance with God that he shares with you. Again, poor woman gets married to a wealthy man with a, a bunch of land and inheritance. Now that's her land and her inheritance. It's yours because he is yours You are now in union with him. But just what is this union with Christ? Okay, what all does this union with Christ involve? There are two things of two kinds of union that we have with Christ. Could say three, but we're just going to do two. (laughs) You can divide these things up in different ways. 
But we're going to say, we're going to talk about a covenantal union and a vital union. Like vitals, like vitality, where you're given life. It's a, a vital union. So let's look at these two. Both of these are set forth in Ephesians 2. First, covenantal union. This is the union that we have with him by legal association with him, by covenant. You might call it an in-law relationship. You have relationship with people naturally, and then you have legal relationships that are established by marriage. And that brings people together that didn't have a relationship before in a union of covenant. You know how we have blood relationship and we have in-law relationships. So that's the idea that they are not, when, when people marry, they're not joined by blood relationships, but they're joined to each other as one by promised allegiance under covenant law. We have a similar relationship with Christ. We saw how in our desperate need as sinners sentenced to everlasting hell, that that's how, how we were. He took pity on us and he came and joined himself to us as our head. He made a binding legal relationship with us in which he became our head and he took the church as his body in the legal way. It wasn't a natural way. We weren't physically born to Jesus Christ as his descendants and heirs, but he established a relationship with us as our king. This is why it's so important that he was anointed because he came into this office and was officially put there by God so that then all of our debts and all of our inheritance are legally tied together with Jesus Christ as we are one body with him by covenant. Now you see why covenant is such an important thing. Jesus did this knowing the great debt. He came to join himself to us, make, have union with us, knowing what that union would mean for him, that it would mean that he would have to pay for our debts, that it would mean that he would be obliged to even go to the cross. He would have to serve the sentence or else the sentence would, be, would remain upon him and us because now we were his. It was the most horrendous suffering that he undertook for us all because he joined himself to us in order to lift us out of our misery. He took all of our problems, in other words. He took all of our guilt when he did that. And you see, it was only through union with him in this way that we're lifted out of our ruin and released to serve God. In Christ, we have his full payment for our sins, and we have all the benefits of his inheritance legally. This covenantal union is essentially brought out in Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. In verse 12, the Ephesians, before they were in Christ, are said to have been aliens from the commonwealth. It's like a nation, right, that has, is together. The commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. So they weren't in that legal union with God in Christ. They were not part of the covenant family that God had established and made a covenant promise to redeem, to purchase, promising that he would be their God and that he would give them eternal life. Abraham 
had that promise, that covenant promise of God's favor, forgiveness of sins through Christ and of eternal inheritance. But those who are not part of the commonwealth of Israel were strangers to that promise. That's what verse 12 is saying. Now look at verse 13. Verse 13 tells the Ephesians that now that Christ has come, they have been joined to the covenant family. They are part of that covenantal family and are no longer cut off as those who are outside. Ephesians 2.13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Think about that. Like when somebody's brought in, we're told in... um, like, like in Isaiah, it talks about how Christ was cut off when he bore our sin. So it was like he was, he was driven out in this way, but then it was, uh, of course, he was, he was restored because he was, he was there bearing our sin. But when we're cut off, like God talks about people being cut off from his people, they're removed from this covenant blessing. So they, they never really had it, of course, but they're, they're removed. Verse 14 stresses that now that Jesus has come, though, the covenant people of Israel who had the promises in the old covenant are now joined with the Gentiles who were cut off but are now brought into the family. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. By our association with him in the covenant, we are no longer children of wrath, as we would be apart from union with him. We're now children of promise. It's a complete change of our status. We have a legal covenant union, just like Abraham had and his seed had by believing the promise. And now that Jesus has died, his death is a death for us death. It's not a death for others, uh, those over there, but it's a death for us who are part of the family. A death for every member of the body. A death that reconciles the whole covenant people, both Jew and Gentile, to the Father. Verse 16. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. So that death is a death for Jew and Gentile, all who come, who are in that covenant. And so Jesus proclaims this good news to us and gives us friendly access to the Father now. 17, 217. And he came and preached peace to you who are afar off and to those who are near. For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So all of this comes to us by virtue of our covenant union with Christ. Because Jesus has peace with God and has paid for all the sins of his body, the people to which he has joined by covenant legally have are forgiven the debt is canceled for them all and they have hope of the inheritance they they're sharers in the inheritance to come if you're brought into a family if you're adopted into a family and you were poor and you had nothing and now you're brought in you have that inheritance that belongs to all the children but you only have this if you have union with christ through faith whereby we come to join ourselves to him for forgiveness and eternal life. So we come to be his bride in order that we might live. Now, this is covenantal union. This is the legal union. But there is also vital union. 
Vital union is what we might call organic union. There, there is this uh, life-supplying union is another thing that we might call it. Vital union with Christ means that we are joined to Him in such a way that He, we might say, pumps spiritual life into us. Okay, Jesus illustrates this really well for us in John 15 when he refers to himself as a vine and to us as the branches. He says that we are were, we were spiritually dead and bear no fruit if we're cut off from him. A branch that's not joined to the roots is obviously a branch that will not survive. It's so true. His life flows into us when we have union with him. See, it's vital union. There's a life-giving force that is, is given to us. When, when you think of vital union, think of vitality. You are given vi- spiritual vitality, vivified, made alive, so that uh, it's, it's not your own. It comes from another source. It comes from Christ. We're especially mindful of this vital union when we come to the Lord's Supper, where Christ promises to nourish us by himself, by his sacrifice for us. We're vivified and kept alive because he constantly nourishes us. I'm the bread of life, he said. I give life to the world. Symbolizes the bread, symbolizes for us the, our eating of the bread and our drinking of the wine, symbolizes receiving that life-giving nourishment from Jesus Christ by his body and blood. Now with vital union, the focus is not so much on Christ dying. Now listen carefully to this. Not so much on Christ dying and rising for us, but rather on us dying and rising with him. Okay? Those are different things. Because we're made alive by it. There's a very significant difference here. 2,000 years ago, Christ died for his people and rose again. But when did you die and rise again? It wasn't 2,000 years ago. It was when you believed. It was when you were converted. Then you entered into vital union and you received life from the dead, from him. You were vivified. That's when you began to live because that's when he began As I said before, pumping life into you if we want to look at it that way. In many ways, it may have been long before your conversion that he began to do this. But it eventually came to the place that it brought you to the place of conversion, repentance, and faith. In Romans 6, Paul clearly speaks of this vital union of dying with Christ and of rising with him. Not Christ dying for us, which he did do, and rising for us, but us dying with him and rising with him. Keep your place in Ephesians, but turn back to, or turn over to uh, Romans 6 and take a look. Okay, Paul had just been talking here about covenantal union with Christ in Romans 3, 4, 5. He talks about covenantal union, right? And uh, how Christ, the, the covenantal union that brings justification to us so that we're legally righteous because we have faith in Christ and we're joined to him because Jesus died for us through, the, through our faith in him crucified. But in Romans 6, 
he shifts to this vital union. And he asks if we should keep on sinning now because we have this covenantal union, this complete forgiveness and justification through Christ. Does that mean I can go now and just sin, do whatever? Because, hey, I mean, I'm, I've got a legal inheritance here. I don't have to, it's not me. It's, I don't have to worry about it. He says, of course not. <laughs> Look at verse two. Certainly not, he says. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? He says, God forbid. Now, I want you to notice something here. He's not just saying that we shouldn't go on sinning. But he's saying that we cannot go on sinning as we did. Why? Because you are made alive. You are made alive by Christ. You are given vitality by Jesus Christ. You are given spiritual life. You have vital union. That union is going to have an effect. You, you are not what you used to be. You've been born again. You've been made alive. Look at what he says in verse 3 and 4. Or do you not know, Paul says, this is uh, again in the Romans passage, Romans 6, 3 and 4. Or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? See, that's a conversion. We were then brought to die. We, we, we died because of our vital union with him. It put us to death to what we were. Therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So our rising with Christ means that we're alive now, dead to what we were, and now alive to walk in a new way with Christ. That's what he's saying. He is not talking here about Christ's death for you. He is talking about your death and resurrection with Christ. Now, when you were first joined to him, baptized into Christ, he put you to death to what you were, and he made you alive. He breathed life into you where there had only been death, and he did it so that you could walk in newness of life. The source of this life, this new life, is what? Your union with him. By the Spirit. Spirit's the one that brings about that union. But that union is the source of life. If you're, if you're cut off from him, the branch, you, you, you shovel up. Now that you see what vital union is, let's look at how it's presented to us in Ephesians. So back to Ephesians. This vital life-giving union is brought out especially in chapter 2, verse 1 through 10. After showing how dead we were without him in verses 1 through 3, Paul tells us how life was brought to us by union with Christ in verse 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses and sins, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. See, that's vital union. Raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, 
he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So Jesus is exalted to sit at the right hand and the power that raised him from the dead is now at work in you to bring vitality, to bring you from death into life. Notice it says, he made us alive together and he raised us up together. You see what that's talking about? It's not reconciliation by atonement there. No, it's talking about the impartation of the life of Christ to us in our death. Our, we're the ones that die now. We're the ones that die and are made alive at a conversion. Now, if I can use the illustration of marriage again, this is something different than the rich prince taking care of all the bills to pay the debt. That's the covenantal union that brings justification. This is about the husband finding his bride lifeless, a veritable corpse, and coming to her, and um, maybe he does mouth-to-mouth resuscitation or something. He breathes life into her so that she can get up. She rises from the dead, and she's able to walk now. It's not about paying her bills. It's about life from the dead. Bringing her from death to life is, and then sustaining her in that life, keeping her alive. This is why in verse 10 it says that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. What happens when you're made alive? You start doing good works. Why? Because you were made spiritually alive. So now you are able to walk with God and to obey God. Yeah, the covenant, that secured your inheritance, it secured forgiveness of sins, paid the debt, all of that. But now he made you alive from being a corpse. You're now walking around serving God. You were raised with him, died to what you were, raised with him to live. So he nourishes us into these works. He continues to supply life to us so that we can continue to serve. So as you can see, union with Christ is a thing that's greatly to be desired. Okay, we become partakers of his redemption when we're united to him. And it happens in both of those ways, covenantal and vital. But how do we become united to him? That's the second thing that I wanted to look at in particular. Okay, we, we've seen, uh, don't worry, we won't spend as much time uh, as we have with uh, looking at the two kinds of union. But uh, okay, so we're united with him. That gives us life in both of those ways, uh, legally and, uh, and actually. But now, what, what do we do? How, how does this happen that we are brought into that? How does the, the connection happen? Well, the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ by working faith in us. Faith is the connecting point, the thing that connects us so that you could say that we're plugged into him, so that we're brought into the family. Look at the legal way, we're, we're the marriage that connects us, the, it's the, uh, the cord that, where life comes to us from him, so to speak. Um, the Holy Spirit joins us to Christ by working faith in us. It, uh, Jesus is the, the Savior, and the way that we're hooked up to him is by faith. In a way, this is how we're hooked up to other things too, isn't it? I mean, if, you're, if your car stops working, you need a savior for your car, okay? It could, it could be you, you know, that's something you can do, but maybe. <laughs> Some of us can't. I'm not very good with cars. But if you take your car to a mechanic that you have faith in, then he promises to fix your car. You turn it over to him. You leave it to him to take care of. 
your car is brought to you, is brought into, it's brought into connection with this mechanic by faith. You look to him to take care of it because you can't do it. It's just the same with, with uh, a <laughs> very ordinary thing with, with toothpaste. You have faith in toothpaste to clean your tooth, teeth. I don't think you'd bother to use it. Um, so you use it. You wouldn't have the benefit of the toothpaste if you didn't have faith. You wouldn't use it. You wouldn't look to it. You wouldn't rely on it. So we're connected to Christ in the same way. Faith believes. What does it believe? It believes the testimony that God has given about his son. God has testified and said that there's life in his son. Faith believes the testimonies that the apostles have given about Christ. Faith receives Jesus Christ himself as Savior, as the object of our trust. This is all brought out in 1 John 5, 10 through 13. 1 John 5, 10 says, He who believes in the Son has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him, God, a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. So faith is not a leap in the dark. I remember talking to one of my friends and trying to witness to him, a friend of mine that was, I knew in high school. And uh, that's how he looked at it. Oh I, I, oh, I believe. And when I talked to him more, what he meant is, I, I just have this sense, everything's going to be okay. It's all going to work out. That was his, that's what a lot of people think faith is. Faith is not that. Faith is where God declares that there is life through my son Come to him, rely on him, trust in him, and you will be given that life, and you depend on that. It's, it's believing the testimony of God that he has given concerning his son. You don't have that life-changing union with Christ and that covenantal union without faith. He explains that the testimony, what it is, um, in 1 John 5.11. And this is the testimony What is God's testimony that we have to believe? That God has given us eternal life and that this life is in his son. And then he makes it very clear what we saw before. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son does not have life. How do we have it? By believing the testimony that God has given that life and salvation is from him. If you don't believe that, you don't have life. The, it, it is the Son Himself that we come to for life. Okay, we, we don't come to the testimony per se. The testimony directs us to the Son. We believe the testimony and we look to the Son because of what He has done. Why do we look to Him? Why would we look to Christ? Because He died for us. And God testifies that His death is acceptable for our salvation and because of what he does in us god testifies to us life comes from my son so i come to him and i'm given eternal life he testified himself when he said i'm the bread of life who came down from heaven to give what life to the world vitality spiritual vitality to those who are dead in trespasses and sins so this testimony comes to us how by means of the scriptures this is God's testimony to us. Again, 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you, written to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So by faith, 
we trust in Christ for a new legal standing through covenantal union with him, and we trust in him to give us new life through vital union. Faith is how the connection to Christ, both covenantal and vital, is brought together. If there is no faith, there is no connection, there is no union. If no connection, then no forgiveness of sin and no life. And this brings us back to Ephesians 2. There, in verse 8 and 9, it shows that the connection to Christ that saves is a connection by what instrument? The instrument of faith. Ephesians 2, 8. For by grace you have been saved. Through what instrument? Through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Faith is what saves us because faith is what reaches out to take hold of Christ the Savior. And just like it reaches out to take hold of the mechanic to fix your car. It reaches out to take hold of Christ to bring the things that God promised. Life, forgiveness of sin, justification. But now you need to see something about this faith that is also emphasized in Ephesians 2. You need to see that saving faith in Jesus Christ does not originate from within you. It is worked into you by God's Spirit. It was an alien thing to you because you are without God in the world. You are by nature uh, of the children of wrath. You were joined to Satan. That's what you were naturally. There was nothing of faith in you to come to God, to come to Christ. So it shows us that it comes, that he, the Spirit, works faith in us. So let's look at that. Um, Ephesians 2.8 declares what we read a minute ago, that the faith is not of yourselves. Now, some people have argued that the phrase, that not of yourselves, doesn't pertain to the faith, but to the grace. And of course, the grace is not of ourselves. The basis of their argument in saying that is, that in Greek, the word faith, this is a little bit technical here, but uh, bear with me because you may read where someone's making this argument. And if you're someone that studies commentaries and things like that, it would be helpful for you to know this. So the basis of this argument is that in Greek, the word faith is feminine. And the word that is neuter when it says that not of yourselves. So therefore, that that, the word that refers to grace, which is also neuter. But this argument fails because in Greek, the neuter form is often used to refer to masculine nouns, even though they may be, um, even, even though they, they may be masculine or feminine, it takes a neuter, um, a neuter the, the, the um, word that modifies is neuter. So, so faith here is an abstract noun. Plus, okay, now that's the end of the technical argument. Uh, this one's semi-technical. <laughs> but but another, another thing is it's redundant to say that grace is not of yourselves. <laughs> of course grace is not of yourselves. That goes without saying. What we need to be informed is that faith is that not of ourselves, but is the gift of God. And that's what is being taught here. You're being told that faith is not of yourselves. Of course, grace isn't. 
he adds further that faith is the gift of God. At the end of verse 8 and 9, he says of faith, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Saying that the grace is the gift of God is like saying the gift of God is the gift of God. Of course, grace is grace. Grace is the gift of God. But he's saying that the faith, you can't even boast and say, I believed and that person over there didn't believe. It's true that you believed and they didn't believe if you're in Christ and they're not in Christ. That's true. But it didn't come from you. It, it was the gift of God, not of your works, of your conjuring, of your anything about you. you there's no place to boast. That's the emphasis. You can't boast about being Christ like we saw last week, too, last time. You, you can't be haughty because you were a wretch. And it's only God that changed you by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And now in Ephesians, we're told the same thing again, only this time where it talks about faith, that even our faith, even our believing was the gift of God. I didn't wash myself. I didn't change my nature so that I would come to God. Neither did I work up a faith in me. He gave me faith. Think about the whole context of Ephesians 2. Paul was saying at the opening of this chapter that you were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sin. A dead person can't do anything. Spiritually dead. So therefore, he says later then, faith is a gift of God to a dead person because it's part of making them alive. God made you alive. The very thing that he made you alive to do first when you were spiritually dead is to believe. Come to Christ to see your need. To see you, you, you came alive, you began to see your need of him, and then you were able to come to him. So there's absolutely no grounds for boasting. If you're drowning and someone pulls you out of the water and gives you mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, do you afterwards boast about it as if you did something great to come back to life? Oh, look what I did, you know? No, you, you were rescued. <laughs> you boast in your Savior, the one who rescued you. You were helpless. It's not of yourselves. Even so, if you know Christ has given you the gift of faith, then do you boast that you believed? Of course not. You boast in Christ, not in yourself. Faith is the gift of God. It has worked into you to make you alive. All the glory goes to God. Not only for redeeming you, right, doing the work of redemption, but also for giving you faith that joins you to that redemption, for applying that redemption to you. The Holy Spirit is the one who works faith in you. So next week, we'll look at how the Spirit goes about working this faith in us. We're going to talk about effectual calling. But today, let's praise God that he has so graciously brought us into union with Jesus Christ through faith. It's on account of this union that we have all things, all things concerning our salvation from Jesus Christ. The forgiveness of sins we have by that union and eternal acceptance with God by covenantal union with him. And we have new life through vital union with him, all by faith, which itself is his gift to us. So let's pray and give thanks.
Heavenly Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, we want to thank you and praise you for giving us life from the dead. We were dead, and you made us alive in Christ Jesus. We praise you, O Lord, for the the hope that we have because of this. We praise you, Lord, that you have brought us into that covenantal union with Christ so that so we are like him. Uh, we're, we're, we're with him. So that when he, if he has an inheritance, we have an inheritance. If we have sin, our sin was given to him. He, he took it on. He paid the debt. He absorbed it. We thank you, Lord. We praise you for that covenantal union. We praise you also for the vital union. Because we were, we were a corpse. And he came and made us alive. And we thank you, O Lord, that now if we know him, that that we are alive. If we have faith, we are alive. That very faith was a gift. It wasn't something that was kind of halfway there in us or that we could bring about of our own. But it's something that was by your gracious work. We have no one to thank but you, O Lord. And Lord, truly, it does put us in an awkward place in a certain way because we look at those who do not have faith. And it seems... Our question is, why, why would you do this for us? And Father, there's no answer to that question except that it was all of your free grace. It was of your own choosing. You might just as well have passed by us and chosen someone else because it was nothing about us, nothing in us. There's no place for boasting whatsoever. So Father, there is only place for thanksgiving that in what you have done for us. And I pray, Lord, that that life may be manifest. And help us to know, too. Help us to know that if, if we're outside of Christ, if anyone is outside of Christ, that they cannot complain. Because, indeed, if they think it's bad to be outside of Christ, no one is forbidding them to come. You open the way. And you tell us all to come. You tell everyone. We're to preach the gospel to everyone and tell them that whoever believes will be saved. There's no distinction. Anyone that comes to you will be saved. And so if someone is going to complain that they're, they're not, then uh, that means that they think it's bad for them not to be saved and all they have to do is believe. So Lord, we pray that you would, um, you would help us to go faithfully with the message of the cross and of forgiveness by free grace. And that we would do it in a way where we're not proud and arrogant. But Lord, where we're not, where we're not haughty like we saw in Titus. But where we recognize, Lord, that we would be down in the, in the depths of sin if you had not made us alive. We thank you, Lord, that now we are no longer strangers and aliens to the covenants of promise. But that we've been made near by the blood of Christ. Lord, make us to follow you and to rejoice in you and to serve you and to to make this salvation known. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing Psalm.